The scene was set on a plane with just a few minutes left until midnight. It was dark. There was pouring rain, thunder rolling behind them, lightning flashing all around them. And as these soldiers stood in their first formation of this experience that would take weeks as they were trained, they were listening for the words of their corporal. They could barely hear it over the roar of the thunder. And he said words that only an an army corporal could really say. That is, he said, men, when you get through this experience, if you make it all the way through, you will be able to rip open your chest and look inside and see what you're made of. Now, doesn't that sound like an army corporal saying right there? He was talking about all the challenges they would face. They would face challenges of exhaustion. Uh, They would face small rations, which would cause grown men to run around even into the surrounding areas, uh, trying to chase down a live chicken or two that they could cook over an open campfire. They would face all of these challenges, but according to this corporal, these were just opportunities to show what they were made of. That's only one of the stories that Dwayne Griffin, one of our elders, shared with our young people at camp uh, the Monday night of camp week. And I wish all of you could have been there, not just to see that, uh, to see the entire week, to see the hard work that Phil and Betsy and Evan put into making this camp such a spiritual success, all those adult volunteers. But it was really interesting to watch as uh, all of the campers with rapt attention were listening to this story. And that phrase really stuck with us throughout the week, especially in, in the guys' cabins, in the guys' campers. We were talking about seeing what you were made of. And that was something that we kept bringing up day after day. Let's see what you're made of. And there are times in life where we're tested and we really have to see what we're made of, aren't they? Aren't there some times that challenge us, that stress us, that test us at work or at home? And we really have to see what's inside. Let's move from the physical training ground to the spiritual training ground for just a moment. Now, the arena has changed, but challenges and struggles still remain. And when we think about that question, what are you made of? We're prepared to hear what Paul would write to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, if you would go ahead and be turning there, if you haven't already. And as you're doing that, let me welcome all of you to our worship service here. And especially if you're visiting with us. If you're one of our guests, we want you to know that you are welcome. We want to get to know how we can serve you and encourage you. And also, as we celebrate Father's Day today, I can't think of a bigger need in our country than to have families that are serving the Lord. And as fathers, we have that spiritual responsibility in raising up families. Now, someone asked me if I was planning on giving any Father's Day advice. And uh, being a father for three months... I was trying to think of what sort of advice I could give. The only thing that I came up with is that when you're putting on uh, those little baby shirts, sometimes the snaps go in the front and sometimes in the back. So I always get a second opinion because I always end up picking the wrong one and we have to go do everything over again. That's about all I've got so far after three months. I I could look out among us and I I see those of you who have been parents for much longer and and seasoned veterans and I I think of the wonderful lessons and advice that that you have to offer. I hope we can take advantage of that and encourage one another as a church family. I also know there are some of us here for whom the term father doesn't conjure up a positive image. I know there are some here that when you think of your father, uh, you think of something much different, a negative experience that, that you might have had growing up. 
And the good news of the gospel is this morning, every single one of us in this room has the opportunity to serve a heavenly father that loves every single one of us. Loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And as we think about the words of Paul, Paul is going to show us, just as he wrote to the Romans, how to serve that God. So no matter what the word father means to you, as we come together, we can think of serving our heavenly father and know that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us. If you were looking for a place that had conflict, that had stress, that had tension, the church at Rome would be a prime example of all of those factors at work. From what we can tell historically, it seems that as the church began at Rome, as there were Jewish Christians who then began to spread the word to the Gentiles, that when Claudius came into power, that he laid out an edict that expelled the Jewish Christians, all those who were Jews, not just the Jewish Christians, all those who were Jews from Rome. In fact, reading in the book of Acts, when we read about Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2, we see that's why they came to Corinth, because they were getting away from, from Rome, from Italy, because of this edict. And at the end of this book, the book of Romans, Paul asks that they greet Priscilla and Aquila. And so we get a sense that the Jews were sent out of the area, and then sometime around A.D. 54, uh, that edict went out of effect as a new ruler came into power, and so they were allowed to come back. Now just imagine the conflict that would have set up. If you had a group of Jewish and Gentile Christians, you've already got conflict there. Those who had been God's chosen people for so long. Those for whom the gospel was now being spread. And then if you take all of those Jewish Christians out of the equation and you give some time where this church of Gentile Christians is finding its own way and spreading God's word themselves. They were doing things maybe that looked a little bit different than what the Jewish Christians would have been used to. So as they come back in, you can imagine they're assuming that they'll pick right up where they left off. Those who had positions of leadership might have been looking for those same positions of leadership. And you can just feel the tension as Paul is dealing with these two separate groups. You can almost imagine as this letter was sent that there's this group of Jewish Christians just waiting for Paul to really give it to those Gentiles. To let them know where they stand and what they need to be doing. You can almost envision on the other side the Gentiles just waiting for Paul to put these Jewish Christians in their place. And to tell them they can't barge back in here and want things to be just like they were. And, and historically, we kind of get a picture of the gravity of the situation, the tension that's taking place. And so what Paul does in the first 11 chapters is he lays out very specifically that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of breaking God's law. There's no one group that's better than the other. There's no one group that's more chosen as a part of God's people than the other. Under the new covenant, all are equal when it comes to the kingdom of God. And so Paul sets that out and he has these just rich chapters with metaphors and illustrations of salvation. And when he comes to chapter 12, he takes kind of a turn from those first 11 chapters, now moving to more practical suggestions. And uh, they went much further than suggestions. Paul was giving them urgent commands of how to live. And Paul is challenging them to show the world what they're made of. And we see that in these first two verses. He would begin, and listen if you can hear the earnestness in Paul's voice as he begins in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul is calling the people not just to offer their bodies as a physical sacrifice that might have been familiar to pagan worship at the time. Paul is saying you need to be a living sacrifice, an everyday 
waking up and deciding no matter how I feel today, no matter what kind of week I've had, I'm going to serve God today. Making that decision that will follow those days and weeks and months, every day deciding I'm going to give myself as a living sacrifice. And verse 2 tells us how that living sacrifice is going to look. It's going to look like people who aren't conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but are transformed by the renewing of their mind. And those two words are so key to us as we think about the importance of this passage. Transformed lives. Renewing our minds. Minds that are renewed. I like the way that J.B. Phillips has translated this. He said, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your soul from within. I think that's a beautiful word picture that captures what's taking place here. We might be familiar with the term uh, breaking the mold. If something comes along that's new and unique, it broke the mold. They really broke the mold when they came out with this invention. Or, or someone has this kind of personality, they really broke the mold. What if we thought about that phrase a little bit differently? What if we looked at the molds that the world wants to place in on us, that the, the stamp, the image the world wants to stamp on us, and we thought that our Christians, our transformed lives are so different that when the world tries to press that mold down on us, it breaks. It just doesn't fit. Because the implication here is that the Christians in Rome had a society that would try to press down certain molds on them, wanted to mold them into their image. There are different ways that we can see, even from historical background of molds that were being pressed down on them. We mentioned the Jewish and Gentile relationships. Well, we've already seen that there was an edict that cast the Jews out of Rome. As they were coming back, society would have really wanted to press that separation, to, to make that divide between them even bigger. And yet, that's not going to work for the Christians. That mold simply isn't going to fit. Paul would go on in this very chapter and tell them they needed to love one another. He'll go on and have a discussion of how they should use their gifts to build up the body of Christ. So that mold simply isn't going to fit Christians. They also might have encouraged people to get even with their enemies, to take revenge. If someone gets something of yours, don't just get mad, get even. But Paul will say in the same chapter to leave the vengeance up to God, to treat one another with kindness. That mold wasn't going to fit the Christians. Roman society would hold up the emperor, their Roman ruler, as the ultimate authority, even when we read through in the book of Revelation and we see the letters written to the different churches, we see that there was emperor worship that was taking place there. That they were being challenged and told they needed to worship the emperor. But that mold wasn't going to fit the Christians. Paul would go on to tell them they needed to submit to the authorities, but only after first submitting their lives to the true Lord. There are all these molds that are going to be pressed on them. And Paul says, this is not a challenge, but an opportunity to show the world what you're made of. To show them your transformed lives, your renewed minds. Now, the molds may have changed, but don't we still face that same problem in society today? Aren't there molds that society would love to press down on us? Images society wants to stamp on us? I don't know how many have seen the commercial where a man gets permission from his wife to go buy a new TV. You see him, you can tell he's excited about this, and he, he runs into the store, and in the background there's music that it gets across a not-so-subtle message. I want it all, and I want it now. And that's playing as he's looking at all of his options. I want it all, and I want it now. Now, it's a commercial that probably makes us smile, but 
did you catch the, the underlying current there? That message trying to drive home? As Americans, we need to want everything we can get and want it right now. Nothing about being selective with, with what we put in our lives and nothing about patience. We need to want it all and want it now. As Christians, we have to decide if that mold's going to fit us. Are our lives going to fit that mold? When we look around and see people who are in need, physically and spiritually, are our lives going to fit that mold? It would be amazing to count going throughout the year how many people come in on a weekly, sometimes even daily basis to this church building looking for help. And one of the greatest ministries we have is being able to use that food that's in the pantry. It's why that's so important. We can pass that help on to them. There are people all around us that are searching for help. We have to decide as Christians, are we going to be molded by the world or by God? Is this mold going to fit? Or are we going to break the mold? It may even be something that's shown study after study of especially the next generation that's coming up a couple of weeks ago for our, our promotion Sunday. Uh, we talked about uh, a, different, a study that had been done with all of these different students that claimed to be Christians. And one of the recurring themes that came up was that all religions are pretty much the same. They're all equally valid. My belief system isn't any better than your belief system and vice versa. And that's going to be one of the great challenges of our age is to preach an uncompromising gospel in a world looking for compromise. And so we have to decide as Christians, is that mold going to fit us? Is that going to be my attitude? Or am I going to be transformed? Am I going to break the mold? And so as we see on talk shows, or as we listen to the radio and hear people say that there's no room for any sort of intolerance, we have to decide, is that mold going to fit us? We could probably think of more molds that are coming at us from all angles in society. What might take a little bit longer is for us to try to envision what it means to renew our minds. We want to be transformed. We want to have renewed minds. But sometimes when we think of those concepts, it's hard to really flesh out what that means, isn't it? It's hard to try to figure out what that means in my life. What difference would that make? And this is where Paul's life and ministry serves as a really wonderful example. The conflict between Jews and Gentiles wasn't just limited to Rome. In fact, if you would turn over just a few pages in your New Testament to Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul provides some insight into this whole process, this transformed life and this renewed mind. We probably don't have to think very hard to think about the transformation that took place in Paul's life and his ministry. Someone who once persecuted the Jews... Uh, that had converted to Christ. He was a leader of the Jews that was going and persecuting Christians. And now he is, he is taking a stand and he is standing up for the Lord. He's been converted and he's preaching Jesus. He's preaching the gospel. And he comes up against another apostle in a confrontation that he talks about in Galatians chapter 2. And this wasn't just any Christian. This was the apostle Peter. We remember reading about Peter throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up, has the privilege of preaching the first gospel sermon. 
And then just a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, he goes to the house of Cornelius. Not only does he preach first to the Jews the message of Christ, now he preaches that to the Gentiles. And there's an experience that happens in both places. The Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost as a sign from God that this message is from him. The same thing happens in the house of Cornelius. Peter has seen all of this. In fact, Peter goes back and tells uh, those leaders of the church that the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles just as it has on us. The gospel is now open to both Jew and Gentile. So you can just imagine from Peter's background uh, what would happen as Paul sees what's taking place here in Jerusalem. If you're in Galatians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 7. And we set the stage for the way that uh, these men were working together. In verse 7, on the contrary, seeing I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, which would indicate the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, speaking those with the Jewish heritage, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now we get a picture here that these men are on the same page. We're going to go preach the gospel to those who were circumcised of the Jewish faith, uh, the Jewish heritage, and you go and preach to the Gentiles. And we're going to both preach the same gospel and the same God is at work. And it sounds like everyone's working together until verse 11. When Paul writes, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And look at the effect this had in verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, we just found out that Barnabas was designed with Paul to go preach to the Gentiles. Now, Barnabas has even been carried away when these men from James came around him. Verse 14 provides us the key. This shows us how Paul was living a transformed life and how his mind was renewed. In verse 14, when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews. In other words, he's saying, when I saw this was contrary to the nature of the gospel, when this went against the gospel that I was called to preach, I stood up to Peter face to face. That's what Paul's telling us here. Now, how was Paul able to do this? Can you imagine what it would have taken to stand up to the man who had been given the privilege of preaching the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles? He had been one of Jesus' apostles throughout Jesus' ministry that followed him and learned from his teachings, and you're standing up to him? The way Paul could do this is because he was able to recognize when something was contrary to the gospel. His mind had been renewed, and it was renewed by an understanding of God's word, an understanding of the gospel he was sent to preach. If Paul didn't understand that that the gospel meant that there were no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, that both Jews and Gentiles could become Christians, if he didn't have that knowledge of the gospel, he wouldn't have been able to stand up against Peter. But because he did, he was able to test and prove what God's will is. We read about that in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. That good, pleasing, and perfect will that both Jews and Gentiles were brothers and sisters when it came to the body of Christ. Paul could stand up and he could proclaim that loudly because his mind had been renewed with an understanding of the gospel. 
In the end, that's how God can transform our lives. That's how we can live that kind of transformed life. If we have a mind renewed with God's word, with his understanding, of, with the understanding God gives us of the gospel, then we'll be able to face situations in life and think, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't consistent with what God wants me to do. This is contrary to the gospel. Think back to the commercial we mentioned earlier. I want it all and I want it now. As Christians, if I'm looking through the lens of the gospel, if I'm thinking of what's not, what's not consistent with the gospel, what might be contrary to it, I'd look at that message and I might be reminded of what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12. A parable of a man whose harvest had become so great he decided he wanted to build bigger barns to store it in. He didn't want to give it away to people who needed it, to share it with those around him. He just wanted to continue to hoard all of those blessings. And the parable ends very abruptly with that man's life being demanded of him. And Jesus says that life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. If I'm thinking through the lens of the gospel with that renewed mind, I'll look at this message and say, you know, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. We might even think of a parable told just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan, who would have been an enemy of the Jews, was an unlikely hero because he took the time to help someone who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead. And if I think of that story, I might be reminded that I don't get to choose who I serve. That if someone is my neighbor, if someone is in need, another soul that, uh, that Christ loved enough to come to the earth and die for, it's my responsibility to serve that person. Even if that person doesn't dress like me, doesn't look like me, doesn't act like me. Even if that person is struggling with things that I've never had to struggle with before, my responsibility is to reach out and to help that person. Let's think about this second idea that's very prevalent. That all religions are pretty much the same. That all belief systems are okay. And if you believe this, that's great for you. I'll believe this, this is great for me. If I'm looking through the lens of the gospel, I'm going to hear something very different. I'm going to hear Jesus' words in John 14 and verse 6 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not just one of many, not just, not just a way or a truth. And one truth is just as good as another. That Jesus is the way. And that's going to cause me, while always reaching out in love to other people, never to compromise the truth that Jesus is the only way. If my mind is renewed with the gospel, I know that any other way that promises uh, a manner to get to salvation, an avenue with, to reach to heaven that doesn't go through Jesus, isn't correct. And it's my job to lovingly, but truthfully, solidly, to declare that message. Those moles that society would love to press on us if we're living that transformed life, they'll break down. We won't be able to fit inside them. There will be molds that won't fit our lives. What are we made of? When we're tested in life, it does often reveal what we're made of. Paul's clear answer in Romans chapter 12 is that as Christians, we should be made of transformed lives and renewed minds. And as we come together on a day that's focused on fathers, a day which our entire nation will celebrate uh, fatherhood and its importance, isn't it important to see these transformed lives and renewed minds in the lives of our families? What would one of those transformed lives look like? There's a retirement community in Memphis, Tennessee 
titled Kirby Pines. It's a wonderful retirement area. There's a group of Christians there that meet every Thursday for a Bible study. And they come together, and these are people that have lived their entire lives in the area. There were leaders in the church. You have in that group men who served as deacons and elders and ministers and professors of church history. A wide, vast array of knowledge coming together for this class. And if you were to talk to that group of people long enough, you'd find out, although they might not talk about it at first, you might have to really try to pry it out of them, but you'd find out that there were several in that group that decades ago, when it came time to plant a congregation in Memphis, mortgaged their homes in order to come up with the money to try to finance that church plant. That there are not not just buildings, but congregations that exist today because of the sacrifice that they made. Now those sound like some transformed lives, don't they? I grew up in a congregation that was in existence and made possible because of the sacrifice of those who had come before. And as we look around this facility we have, this great number of Christians we have, we are all standing it and and we're gaining the benefit of of the blessings provided by previous generations who lived the transformed kind of life. A life that wasn't concerned with wanting it all and wanting it now. A life that was convinced that Jesus was what he claimed to be, the only way of salvation, and willing to lay it all on the line. As I think about my life, I'm challenged not only by those examples, but by the words of Paul. How will I live in a transformed and a renewed way? Whenever you spend time on family reunions, it's always interesting when people try to figure out who you look like, A lot of people will say, well, you look just like your mother. You look just like your father. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all left here today and people looked at us and said, you know, that person looks just like his father. Not his physical father, but his spiritual father. Notice this last part of verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. Once we have done all these things with a transformed life and a renewed mind, we'll be able to prove what the will of God is. We will be representatives of God's will on earth. With both of those things in place, when God has transformed us through his word, we'll be able to do his work in the world. People will look at us and say, you know, she looks just like the Father in heaven. He looks just like his heavenly Father. That's who that person reminds me of. Wouldn't it be great if that could be said about us? And if you're here today and not part of the body of Christ, that process of transformation and renewing your mind can begin right now. This may not be the only opportunity, but I can't think of a better one. When we have a group of people who would love nothing more than to be your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to begin by submitting your will to God's, by by being immersed in the water which brings you into contact with the blood of Christ. Where you can live a forgiven life that's constantly striving to serve him. Or maybe you've begun that life, but some of these images the world has tried to stamp on you have caught you off guard. Some of those molds have pressed down so hard that it's so much pressure to be like the world around you. We would love to pray for you, to pray with you. If there's any way we could help as you begin, no matter what point you are in the process of this transformation, let's all leave here encouraged to live lives that are transformed and renew our minds with the gospel of the word of God. If we can help you, please come as we stand and sing together.